0: Welcome to the very first Zippy the Wondersnail podcast. I'm here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason.
1: Hey, how are you doing, Tim?
0: I'm doing well. Looking forward to kicking Zippy off.
1: Sounds great. Let's do it.
0: Okay, well, I think you should tell everyone your tagline for Zippy the Wondersnail.
1: Yeah, we're calling this Zippy the Wonder Snail because it's two Christian guys zipping through the news and culture that affects you.
0: That's our goal, and we're really glad that you're joining us. We're going to have a lot of fun, and we're going to discuss some really interesting topics. We're going to jump all over the place. This, this is a podcast for those who love eclectic thought.
1: I think I can do that.
0: We should talk about the title a little bit. Why would we call a podcast Zippy the Wondersnail? And really, it's not anything terribly profound. Years ago, I... I while I was doing more web design, I had a client hire me to do a website. I'm not even sure what it was going to be about, but he had me register the domain name zippythewondersnail.com, and then he just vanished off the face of the earth. He never paid for anything, uh, never claimed his site, never set it up. And I had zippythewondersnail.com, and I thought, I'm not really sure what you do with a domain name like this. What do you do with zippythewondersnail.com? But it was too good just to let it expire. I had to hang on to it for something, and so here was this moment, this epiphany, that it would be perfect as we zipped through different topics, that we would go under the brave mascot of the fastest snail on earth.
1: That sounds like change that I can believe in.
0: So let's go ahead and change into our first topic and talk first about the Gospel of John. Jason, you've been writing for a while now, blogging through the Gospel, and... I think one thing I've never actually asked you is what started you on writing
1: on the gospel of John? Well, I got to be very honest and, and he's, he's going to find this out if he listens to the podcast, but my brother um, is really new. My brother, Kevin is really new in his Christian journey. And I thought, okay, John's my favorite gospel. If I were going to lead somebody through uh, like a Bible study on the Gospel of John. Uh, what language would I use for a guy that hasn't read all these fancy commentaries, um, doesn't have all this fancy seminary education like you and I both did? How would you talk about this to a guy that's never heard this before? And so I just, that was my idea for going through the Gospel of John. So you'll notice I've kept the language really simple, uh, And, and hopefully, hopefully it works and hopefully it's not, but it still provides good background information on the gospel, um, and things that you might need to know as a reader. Uh, but, but that's, that's who the audience is for. The audience is my brother. So if it ever is published as a book, um, he's going to be the first dedication of the book. And so I'm really proud of that. And I want to do more of them after I'm done with John. So that's. That was the
0: vision of it, so. Wow, I love that. I I can't believe I hadn't asked you that before, but I had noticed the way that you'd kept the language straightforward and free of all the uh, theological one-upsmanship that is present typically in commentaries, which is something that struck me for a long time. How is it that you take the most exciting story ever told uh, the most important story ever told. And it seems like commentators are often in a race to make it as dry and as impenetrable as possible.
1: It, it, it is really tough. And, and the thing about it, let, let's be fair to the intellectuals um, who can give us loads and loads of detail on particular things and you can get caught in a cul-de-sac. Um, but as I read commentaries, I thought, you know, ordinary people, don't need to know this particular thing. You know, they need to know, why is this relevant to me? How, how is God speaking to me? Or what might I need to know so that I can receive what God is saying to me? Um, and, and I think that's what we need to go for. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do. So hopefully I could be successful in that project.
0: I think you're doing a great job of it. And and I love how you tell it as a story because it is a story and and John's a master storyteller, but if you're going to comment on it and take it apart, it seems only appropriate that you continue to have that storied
1: feel to it. And, and you know, uh, in these days, I'm sure you know, Tim, you have to be really careful about the word story because some people, they hear story and they automatically think not true. Um, Yeah, but that isn't, you know, following Tolkien and following Lewis. I don't have that notion of story. Uh, I have the notion of story like, hey, I'm going to tell you a story. This is what happened. Uh, So that could be fictional story. That could be just a straight narrative of this is what happened to me. So um, hopefully we can reclaim that meaning of story. But but also that story is something interactive. Like if I tell you a story. Uh, your reception of what I'm telling you is crucial to the conveying of whatever I have to say, if that makes any sense. So I think both things are there.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. We, We live in a society, I think it's kind of weird because you're right, we tend to think of stories as fictional, and yet I think we are more dependent on storytelling than we were maybe a
1: generation ago. Well, and I think a uh, deeper discussion into postmodernism. We'll have to wait for a future episode of Zippy the Wondersnail. But I want to say one more thing about the Gospel of John. Um, is that, And if you read it really close, and, it, and our, our Christian listeners, veteran Christian listeners, will have read it lots of times, but you'll notice um, a rising tension in John's Gospel. Uh, and so it's almost divided into thirds. You know, you have three three years of Jesus' public ministry, uh, and it, it seems to escalate at each point. And you'll see the rising opposition as you keep going. And so you're like, wow, um, what do I do with this rising opposition? Or, or what does this make me feel? How, how am I thinking through uh, these opponents of Jesus? And but... As I'm going along here and you'll notice as I'm blogging through, I want to get in the minds of the people who might be opposing Jesus and try to come up with, without making it too heady, try to come up with reasons why the opponents of Jesus would be reasonable in their positions. Not necessarily correct, but what would you be thinking if this man just shows up on the scene and starts saying this stuff that seems entirely wrong uh and and, but he's very influential and he's very influential among the people and then he's doing miracles um so i don't want to i don't want to cast the pharisees as villains let's just put it that way
0: that's the easy route isn't it it's it's not really the helpful route right well especially since we always make sure that even if we see them as the villains we don't ever put ourselves in the villain's seat. And I think that's one of the challenges is we, we can cast a lot of stones at the Pharisees, but we don't realize how often we act like them. Yeah, exactly right. One more thing I wanted to capture before we completely wrap up the Gospel of John, I really like this thing that you wrote last week in particular. You said death is so wrong and the sorrow so deep that the Son of God couldn't tolerate it for even a moment speaking of the death of Lazarus there. And you said we should be mindful of this when we are tempted to tell people that their grief over the death of a loved one is too much for us or has gone on too long. I thought that was really a profound statement.
1: Uh you know, I, I I've suffered a lot of loss in in my life um in my 41 years on this planet and and I've been very close to people who have died suddenly. And I know you have too. Um, and this particular story in John 11 of the death of Lazarus, but then the resurrection of Lazarus is completely mesmerizing as a story. And so it was that, that insight that um, grief never, there's no time limit on grief. Um, and Jesus's grief, at the death of Lazarus, um, kind of brought that out for me again. So I wanted to definitely caught me as I was reading through John 11 again. The other day,
0: I should mention if you're listening and you haven't, you should check out Jason's blog. We'll put it in the show notes. He goes in depth, uh, pretty much every day is it every
1: day. Every day. Uh, I don't, I don't do it on Sunday, um, for. Christian reasons, uh, Sabbath reasons, but the other days, every day, and, and maybe um, more than one post a day if I'm doing really well, so.
0: Well, make sure to check that out, and we will move on to our first sponsor. So, for those of you that, that know Jason or myself, you probably have discovered we've relaunched the online magazine open for business. If you haven't, you should check it out at OFB.biz. We're publishing about three times a week commentary on all sorts of things. It's the Journal for Technology, Culture, and Life. And we have lots of, I think, interesting things going up on there. Jason's writing once a week or so. I'm writing once a week or so. And then Dennis E. Paul, one of our longtime collaborators, just returned as well. So, Check out Open for Business OFB.biz.
1: I agree with everything you said. Sounds like our segment music. Tim. It does, doesn't it?
0: Well, yeah. you know, I'm having a little bit of fun with the soundboard here. I mean, you put a, a, a tech geek in the process of doing audio recording, and what's he going to do? He's going to find gadgets to use, right?
1: Oh, brother! Yes, yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> Especially over a course of a pandemic, we were trying to figure out how do I do everything in ways that can work with what's available. And I think that's one of the things I find interesting about our next topic, the album Folklore, uh, Taylor Swift's album from last year. I'd imagine most of the people listening have encountered at least part of it. Uh, Anytime I turn on the radio right now, I'm hearing singles from it. So it's definitely very present. And it's also very key to the mood of the last year with the pandemic. And Jason, you actually wrote about it just a couple of weeks ago on open for business.
1: I did write about it a couple weeks ago on open for business. And, uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily trying to be objective in that review. I'm just going to say here on the podcast that I absolutely love this album and it might be the best album that I've ever heard in my life. So uh, that's that's just where I am. Uh, call me a freak if you want to. The listeners may call me a freak. That's fine. I was a fan of hers anyway, but she's taken it to another level. So,
0: To me, this album actually represents something of a return to what made some of her early albums really interesting.
1: Uh, say more about that, Tim. I'd be curious to know your thoughts in that direction. To me, when you
0: look at her country era, uh, it was typified. We were talking about story earlier. This is another example of story. I, country music, as a storytelling form, it seems to me, at least at its finest. And certainly most of her songs had these stories, and and her pop era later on has stories as well, but I feel like the stories come back to the surface a little bit more in this music. Maybe just the style, I think, plays well with that. And the whole idea of telling stories of different people as she constructs it lets her expand her storytelling craft.
1: I I think you're onto something really incredible there because um, one one thing that her producer Jack Antonoff said in the documentary, which I'm glad you have finally watched, um, (laughs) is that he said, you know, a lot of times when you write a song, Taylor, it's very focused and it's very uh, in the moment. But on several tracks, he said, you pulled it back and you've showed a bigger, a wider circle of, of concern. And she herself said that she, she wrote about other people on this album. It wasn't just uh, stripped strict from the headlines of her life. Um, and I think it made it better in that way. Um, she's become a storyteller, not just a narrator of her own story. Uh, I think it makes it great. And I I think to connect it to her older work, I think you're right on there. Because the way she can turn a phrase, even within a story, um, is fantastic. And now she has a whole bunch more stories to talk about. So I think that's what makes it great, and that's what connects her to all the work that she's done so far.
0: Yeah, it's a, a departure, but a departure that feels logical. It's not just... Where you wonder, did she have some kind of you know mental breakdown and completely come out a different person or something? It's it's more uh, putting her in the situation of a pandemic and
1: having time to to reflect and distill a story. You and I had heard that this was like yes, yeah. her pet sounds, you know, like the album from the Beach Boys that was so influential, and I think that's right. And I think uh, critics will eventually say that this was a landmark thing that we all talk about when we're old. Um, uh, this was an album that changed the game. Uh, and, and maybe that will serve a good segue to what we're going to talk about later, but she has changed the game. This is not just an ordinary Taylor Swift album. You know, she has her, her fans, and then she has her detractors. I think this is an album that could change you from one to the other. Uh, and she deserves credit for that. It's, it's an unbelievable work of art, and that's what it is. So, it, it's,
0: I think that's a, a great way to capture it. And it, it struck me listening to it and, and watching the documentary, thinking in terms more, songwriters are poets, but I feel like this album edges more towards poetry in its best sense. I know a lot of people today have a negative view of poetry, and I'd argue that's because what we often call poetry in, in a modern sense is jamming a bunch of words together in a way that's obtuse to say look at what I can do with words but if you look at true poetry and she references Wordsworth towards the end of the documentary if you look at true poets what they're doing is taking the language and as one of my English professors said years ago it's distilling feeling into words in in a universal sense so that that different people, like you were saying about this album, different people can hear it, different experiences, but there's something that you can connect to in it,
1: right? And and you know the critics may say, well, that's just brilliant marketing that, that we can find ourselves in this Taylor Swift album, but I really can. Um, and and so and one thing I want to say about um, about pop music as poetry in relation to other types of music. Because especially in the higher liturgical expressions of Christianity, as it were, if I may obliquely refer to uh, you know Holy Mother Church and, and all sorts of people, uh, is is that you you know there are these ideas of objectively higher quality music, you know, like I don't I don't want to go I don't want to go into church and hear Kenny Loggins in church. Right, so there is there is a fittingness um, in a worship space that you know Taylor Swift is not going to fit in a worship space, um, but at the same time, I think when you uh, when you're hanging out with Palestrina all day and Bach and Beethoven and, and these other sorts of guys, you can lose that uh, connectedness to to ordinary people and the stories that they tell. Uh, and so there has to be a balance between communication, which I think pop music does really well, and, and the dignity of music and the perfection of music. Um, as a musical ig- ignoramus, I might be talking way off my rocker on this one, but that just came to mind. Well, I'm with
0: you on that, and you are the open for business music critic, so you may have a a leg up on me, but I think generally thinking in terms of pop forms of art, where you can actually put the art qualifier on it is when it goes beyond simply being appealing to the, to just the general public, but at the same time, isn't less than that. Uh, You know, I, I have a great love for Shakespeare. Shakespeare's brilliance in his time was to be able to take the high-cultured royalty and take the average person on the street and they could all go into a theater and find something to connect to in his work. It wasn't one or the other.
1: Right. Did you want to say something about Invisible String, which is one of the tracks on the album?
0: One thing I think is striking to me on that, and I believe she mentions it in the, the documentary, but it, it really is interesting thinking in terms of her reflection on how the pandemic was a... In some sense, helpful thing uh, that she actually had this creative renaissance through it, and and that you can see these these things in life that move us and have purpose. And I think that was one thing. If I was going to take one thing away from the documentary, that I appreciated, I think we've had this temptation over the last year not to see the providence in times like the last year that have sort of upended all of our straightforward plans. And I like how that song in particular captures the idea that we don't always understand how things are moving, but it's this expectation and she doesn't make it explicitly religious, but this expectation that there might be something pulling together those pieces that don't seem to fit quite at the moment.
1: Right. Right. And I like that. On the one hand, you could criticize that and say, well, it just terminates in a romantic relationship. Like who cares? Um, you know, and you're, and you're not married and all sorts of things, but at the same time, uh, to, to believe that you yourself are not necessarily in control and that someone is in control, even if she doesn't name that someone as God, which she probably should. I wish she would more explicitly, um, but, but just to acknowledge that we're not in control, but we want to be, and, and that we can find something of a gift in this very challenging situation that we've been during, enduring this last year plus. Um, that was really special, and I just want to say along the lines of the documentary that I've gained a new appreciation for Aaron Dessner and his brother Bryce, which helped, uh, who helped with the string arrangements and so I'm going to be listening to The National a lot more uh, going forward because I had heard their names, but I never listened to their music. Uh, and, and they helped Taylor with this incredible album. And, and I think I like them as people, and I like the music that he does. So uh, that's very exciting. And Bonnie Vera the same way. So I have new people that I can explore as the music editor at OFB and just as a person who likes music. So that's very exciting as well.
0: I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what you come up with on that. I I know I've encountered the national over the last few years and I, I really do like some of their work. So I'll look forward to hearing what you have to say on that. Well, we we're not going to completely change topics, but I want to shift us just a little bit. Um, I think all of us have heard about these NFTs now, these non fungible tokens, and most of us are scratching our head at what exactly they are. Um, And it was funny because we were talking about putting together this podcast and i read this article i i I sent it to, to jason i'll put it in the show notes for everyone else from ben thompson over at stratechery and it did such a good job of wrestling with the value of nfts and also it tied very nicely into what we were talking about because he was doing it in terms of taylor swift and her ongoing battle over her her master recordings of her past albums and I thought it did such a good job of sort of bringing to life this whole idea of what an NFT is. You have these NFTs, and they're kind of hard to get our heads around because they're not really normal transactions. They're they're tokens for, for example, for pieces of art. So you have a number of musicians that have put up NFTs for their art. Uh, Jack Dorsey got a ton of attention over the last few weeks. He put his very first tweet up when he founded Twitter. It it raised $2.9 million. Wow. But what I really liked about uh, Ben Thompson's article on it is he did a great job of thinking, well, why would you pay for this token? Because the token is essentially a token saying you own a copy of this digital thing. But, but I can go to Twitter.com and view Jack Dorsey's first tweet. I can go uh, view a piece of art that's digital without having to buy the token. What's the point of the token? And what I thought he did, they broke down really well, was taking this in the context of Taylor Swift's release of Fearless, Taylor's version, uh, over the last few weeks, where you have this controversy where Swift owns the rights to the words and the music in her past recordings, but the label owns the master recordings, the actual audio recording of her early albums and so she's re-recording her albums so that she can take control of that but his point is you can go and get a digital copy of a song and we tend to think of the recording of the song as the thing that has value or the album that we buy but that massive set of master recordings that just sold for i think somewhere north of 300 million dollars is quickly becoming far less desirable simply by the fact that Swift has decided to re-record and then label her re-recordings as Taylor's
1: version. Right? And I th- I think one of the things that's going on there and maybe the function of connecting directly with the audience through the NFT is to say we're cutting out the former middlemen in this in this music business in the monetization of this uh popular music business and so because you know you know and there many years ago there was a lawsuit between the r&b group tlc and their former manager because tlc was getting like six cents on the dollar of the music that they had created and it's like yeah I, i you know i want the record company to make some money and i want the the video, video director and whoever else to make some money. But who's running this deal? Would, would the music of TLC be anywhere without the members of TLC? And the answer to that question is no. And so Taylor saying, let me cor- connect directly to my audience that values me and what I create and what we share together and then cut out these other people that are making way too much on products that they didn't create. Uh, So that's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see where the economics of that go and where the politics of that go going forward.
0: Yeah, there's lots of potential. I think we're going to see more of that, especially in an era where we have more decentralized access to the audience, where not everything has to be controlled by the label. Uh, Certainly musicians can reach out. We see that with self-publishing as well, where more and more authors, even if they're successful, even if they can sell thousands or millions of copies of a, of a, a work, are choosing to forego the traditional imprint that would be between them and, and the consumer. So I think we have a lot of things like that. And I think in that then, if, if you're listening and you've been thinking, well, what is, are these NFTs? To me, this sort of brought it all together. An NFT in some sense is Analogous, I heard someone say to getting a signed copy of a print. You know, you, you, you find an artist you really like and you order a print, but you get a signed print. Well, you could buy a regular print for way less, but the artist's signature's on it. It says it's a value. Basically, it's not in any measurable material sense. The ink that's been added to the, the, the print isn't really worth much. But the fact that the artist has said, this is mine, and I've made it unique, there aren't as many of these, makes it a value. And that's what an NFT does. And that's really what the Taylor's version of, of Fearless does. Because in theory, she's not redoing everything. There are some different production values, and I think it sounds really good. But the real right. value in some sense is that she said, if you value me as an artist, this is the version you want. And thousands, if not millions of people are saying... Okay, this is the version I want. I no longer want the previous version.
1: It's it's just like when Professor Patrick Deneen of Notre Dame and wherever else signed my copy of his book Why Liberalism Failed. You know, I could read the book anywhere, but I would rather read the book that Patrick Deneen himself signed. Maybe that's a bad analogy for NFT, but that was going through my mind when uh you know, when, when the creator himself or herself puts their stamp on it and it's yours so that's that's a special thing and more power to them if if they're able to do it if taylor's able to do it and it works out
0: yeah best i see this as being a potentially really good thing because if we can get past the point of having a few gatekeepers on these things I, i think we'd be better off we have this decentralized internet where that can happen. Really, I think we have to ask at this point: Why are we still acting as if we didn't? I don't need a label to produce the music and put it on a CD and hand it to me. In and in, I mean, I
1: like still buying CDs, incidentally, but I don't. need Yeah, just that. like how how I still enjoy buying books. Um, yeah, but I, well, on books, I mean,
0: arguably, the the quote unquote user interface of an actual book is so much better than the best ebook. But but still the idea of I, I don't have to f- wait until a, an author is considered significant before I can get a decent book from that author is appealing. I think right. that is right. a lot of appeal.
1: And I think, I think where we might disagree is that I see a, I see a gatekeeping function as being valuable in terms of discernment. When we're talking truth and falsehood and how are you going to live and how are you going to lean into the world? Uh, because expertise is not necessarily democratizable, at least not all the way. Uh, so there's that. But I definitely, if we can take down the bar- barriers to the sharing of good and true information, then let's do that as much as we can. Now, we may disagree on what is true and what the value of a thing is in relation to another thing. But uh, but the more we can share true things and good things and beautiful things with each other, the better.
0: I, I totally agree. And I, I think there still needs to be a gatekeeping function, but I almost think it's a gatekeeping on the other side where you you think about in terms of anything of significance gets reviewed by critics and so on. We still have that realm, uh, but it doesn't have to be reviewed before it ever reaches anybody for the sake of the economic impact of, you know, printing off thousands of copies of a book that doesn't sell or or pressing a bunch <laughs> of CDs that no one wants. You can go ahead and see if people appreciate it. Certainly on things that are more factual, you want to make sure there's some reliable people commenting on it so that you're not reading something that's completely false, uh, you, you know, arguing that Mars is made out of um, cheddar cheese or something like that, as delicious as yeah, I mean. Knew-
1: and you know we have numer we have numerous pop culture examples of of great great films and, and even works of fiction that were completely ignored by the cognoscenti. So, you know we would agree largely on that. Is sometimes they get it wrong, and and let the people decide. You know, like singing in the singing in the rain was completely ignored by the Oscars. Uh, and, and you're all like, really? I mean, wow. And and North by Northwest was ignored by the Oscars. That great film, starring Cary Grant. So, uh, but that's another topic, anyway.
0: One of the things that strikes me that we've been talking about is how we often need to be able to pull in more sources and have access to them to to really get to see what's out there because we do have a lot of people that make profoundly wrong. Decisions on valuing information out there. And that's one thing I love about our second sponsor for the show today, FaithTree.com. It's near and dear to me, but FaithTree.com has been online for just short of 20 years now. It's going to celebrate its 20th anniversary in June. And if you're like me and you go online and you try to pick out, okay, I'm going to go to this news website, I'm going to go to this site that comments on art, I'm going to go to this site on technology, I often find that almost all of them are inadequate. Because they all have their certain blind spots, certain biases, what have you. With FaithTree.com, you can go ahead and pull in all kinds of sources and put them into a single feed. And the nice thing is, it shows you the stuff you ask it to show you. It doesn't have some kind of algorithm like the Facebook news feed that's going to target you and decide what it thinks is going to make you angry and show you that. It's going to show you what you actually ask it to show you. It's ad free, unlike this podcast. And. <laughs> it's totally free to use, so you should sign up today. Faithtree dot com.
1: That was the best plug ever. Did you did you want to transition to your your OFB piece on on blogging in relation to what you've just said? Yeah, I think that would fit, don't you? I think it does.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I can't help a good plug, and I even plugged Faith Tree actually in that blogging piece. But besides the plug. Well, I think what really struck me, I was thinking back and I remember the golden age of blogs, I, I'd say was really during my years in college, uh, you know, the early 2000s was sort of the the prime moment for blogs. It was this time where you, you had the internet, and I go into this in way more detail in the piece, I, I'll link to it in the show notes if anyone's interested, but yeah. you, had, you had this this great emergence where you have this early internet that's decentralized, speaking of gatekeepers, you, you have this opportunity for essentially anyone to be a publisher, and with blogs, it it became possible for average people to relatively simply go online and say something. And what I loved about the early blogosphere was its community-oriented nature, and it sort of functioned in that role. Instead of having a gatekeeper that said, this is what's valuable and this is what isn't, what brought value to it is that you built relationships with other bloggers, and and shared input back and forth, and and if different bloggers found value in what was being said, they'd link to each other and so on, and so you actually had this meritocracy of sorts that brought some of the best up to the top, and you saw that from big, huge, scandal-breaking news that came out that the news media had ignored and the bloggers brought up and then shared with each other and made into news, to just... What really I loved about it was just the average everyday people I got to know that had good insights into things that often would make me think
1: differently. Yeah, I, I mean that was the interesting thing is that we had we had our college experience at roughly the same time, so I remember the the growth of blogs, the insane popularity of blogs in the early two thousands, and that and that's when that's when mine started. You know, I started mine in O two. So, and that, that was where it was at long, long form or maybe short form in serial, you know, serial expression, but sit literally citizen journalism. And, you know, you remember, you remember the Killian memo scandal, uh, the Rathergate scandal yes. that took down Dan Rather. Uh, and that was, that was Charles Johnson, Little Green Footballs that broke that scandal, that uh, that examined the uh, the documents, the, the alleged Killian documents, and discovered they were created with Microsoft Word, and that that typewriter that he claimed the memos were written on didn't even exist in 1970-whatever that was, uh, when Lieutenant Bush, then President Bush, uh allegedly skipped out on his national guard service. So um, what a great, what a great act of service um, by Charles Johnson and those who helped break that story. Uh, And that, and that's why, if I can say on a personal note, you know, I have, I have noticed a few things that Dan rather has said recently that I agreed with, but I, but I thought, you know, sir, you have not at all atoned for your role in that. And and before you become a respected voice and before you can lecture other people about, um, about opinions that are getting out of control and political dialogue that's getting out of control, you're going to have to do that penance, if I can use that word, uh, for your own role in that. So... It'll be interesting to see how that goes going forward as, uh, as the, as the old media gatekeepers, as it were, lose their ground to others. Uh, how does discernment come along with that? And uh, what is the social, uh, what are the social interactions that quantify good information versus bad information and the conversation around, uh that discernment and that distinction so anyway that sounds crazy but i think i'll leave it right there and you can pick it up
0: no i i think that's a great point the uh here's the interesting thing and this is what really was sort of the the thing that kept gnawing at me where i felt like i wanted to write about this and talk about it is that we talked about that golden era of blogging and and this is some journalism and and how that developed and then it seemed to kind of wither. And I, I, blogs haven't gone away by any means. But but if you really look at where influences today, it's on social media. You look at Twitter, you look at Facebook and the things that go there. Certainly, our last president helped to even put a bigger emphasis on Twitter. But, but really, regardless, Twitter had sort of taken over a lot of what blogging had done. But what struck me is that it's a shame because one of the beautiful things about blogging is it offered that citizen journalism in a decentralized way. And what really determined whether you were going to be a voice that would be heard or not wasn't if a news organization bestowed a, a title on you, but whether you actually showed yourself to be a reliable source that people should listen to or not. Right. And certainly there were some disgraced bloggers that just sort of got ignored after a while. And there were those that repeatedly broke reasonable important stories that got more and more attention. well, that's not really what we're seeing and while on the one hand I I want to be supportive of the idea that social media is trying to stop false information from spreading on it, at the same time I'm struck by this whole deplatforming situation where I think we've created this weird ideological echo chamber. It's been shown time and again that these these social media platforms stir up and emphasize the things that are, are at the most extreme versions of ourselves that really in some sense radicalize. Yeah. And then they kind of come in and they say, Oh, but we're going to pick out these things and we're going to say, this isn't true and this isn't true. And this is true. And really you're kind of creating a worse version of the old media where is trying to sort of come up with this official line while at the same time
1: stirring up even more trouble in, in its path. Yeah, I think there's two aspects to that, right? There's the, the technological part with the algorithms and with addicting us to their services, and Facebook knows all about that. But there's also, it's deeply ironic to to have these new gatekeepers in, in big tech, if I can say it like that. Right. And that there, there's this center left or even further left, progressive left ideology that is in the background at Twitter and a lot of the major, uh, big tech companies. And, and yet they want to be these warriors for truth, but, but they're, they're living in a soup of relativism and, and something is going to have to give, you know, uh, you, you can't, we can't have open dialogue about, um, all sorts of things like that you and I as Christians would hold to. Um, but, you know, but we got to get the misinformation out of there. And, and so these relativists with these very strong opinions about, um, who should be canceled and who, who should not be and who, um, who doesn't deserve to have their opinions heard. It's deeply ironic in that sense. Hmm. You know, we, uh, you know, as Christians, we, we have a leg up here because we believe in truth and, and even that truth is a person, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, but, but but that we're accountable to something known as the truth. And that can give us a, a ballast, uh, you know, a balance where these, you know, some of these tech companies and some of these people swimming around, not knowing what's true and what's false. uh, They can't give you that though. They do. They do try, you know, Oh, we got to cancel this guy. We can't hear, we can't hear from him or her, uh, but yeah, you know, everyone, everyone's free to do their own thing. And something about that is in contradiction. So I wonder if you want to say anything more about that really quick.
0: Well, uh, as we wrap up, I, I think the sort of the thing for me is that I'd love to see, and I, this is sort of my, my call to arms, I'd love to see more of the people, people listening to this podcast. Certainly you're already doing it, Jason, but I'd love to see more people return to blogging because I feel like it solves a couple of these things. First, we, we take the algorithm out, and if you use an RSS reader, and this is not just trying to plug Faith Tree again, you, there's lots of good RSS readers out there. If you use that, you can plug into a multitude, most websites really, and have them show up and you can see what's going on, you can follow different bloggers, and if you have a news feed of quality bloggers and ideally people that you, some people that you know that you don't agree with, there's far more opportunity for genuine dialogue and growth, I think, than what we typically get out of Facebook, which it doesn't show me the reasonable people I might disagree with generally. It shows me the people that are going to raise my blood pressure, so I want to type a comment or I want to give a reaction or I want to go back and read it again and think about how horrible it is. (laughs) And likewise on, on one's own side. So there's that. And two, you know, to trade one gatekeeper for another gatekeeper that arguably is worse, I think Facebook is a worse gatekeeper than a major news organization in, in many ways. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but if we go back to something that's really going to rise on meritocracy, you're not going to see blogs typically rise up uh, without algorithms if they're bad and if they repeatedly are wrong. Not completely, it's not foolproof, but I, I think it's better and it offers a better counterweight to mass media than just throwing all our chips into social media and then getting upset when it comes apart.
1: And if there, and if there was a golden age, I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction right here for my final comment. But if there were, if there was a golden age of legacy media, it was people like Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite, uh, Mike Wallace was a latter day example of this. And yeah, you might not agree with any of those guys, but they were committed to the truth. And so one of the things that's going to keep us afloat, whatever we decide who the new gatekeeper should be, is belief in in truth objectively. Uh, and as and as long as we start from there, even if we don't agree, we can get somewhere. Um, as long as we believe that truth is able to be known, I think we only get in danger when we just decide, oh, that's your truth and. This is my truth and I'm going to stay here and we're not going to interact and we're not going to share. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes in the in the soup of, uh, you know, large, large firm capitalism and also uh, ideological soup that we're swimming in. Really interesting to see where it goes.
0: Well, certainly been good
1: commissar uh, joining you today. Uh good to be with you as well, Pastor Tim, and look forward to doing it again.
0: Me too, It's good to be with all of you that are listening. Uh, it's an honor that you've actually decided to tune in. We're glad for that. Uh, we'd love it if you'd follow us on our social media channels. They'll be linked to in the show notes as well. Follow the next podcast that we do. We'll have it up on all the major podcast podcasts channels that you resources that you can go to all the great podcasting gatekeepers i suppose uh you should go there and subscribe today so you get the next one because we're going to do more of this and it's going to be so much fun and it's going to be fun to have you along for the ride as jason and i adventure further so thank you again for being here for zippy the wonder snail episode one and unlike episode one of star wars hopefully this was better
1: (laughs) yeah hopefully
0: So it's the Trekkie. Okay. Uh, Well, we are so glad to have you. I hope you have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time.